All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello, friend. This is an episode of Note to Self, but from when we used to be called New Tech City. Same good content, just the old name. Enjoy. Are those your toes? Is that your feet? You don't remember this, but when you were around three months old, you discovered your feet and toes. Wow, those are cool. You also started to be able to focus on objects. You probably also liked looking at yourself in the mirror. Those are the coolest thing on earth, huh? You started to understand that you have a body. You were getting self-aware. You are human. Hi, it's Manoush Samarodi, and this is New Tech City from WNYC, the podcast about how technology is changing the way we live. And you were just hearing an adorable homemade video of a mom and her baby boy on YouTube. Perfect for kicking off this week's show about humanity. What makes someone human? And what about machines that are growing more and more like humans? First, I want to introduce you to Dr. Hod Lipson. So instead of just talking about what it means to be human, philosophizing about it, let's see if we can build it. Hod is a professor and researcher at Cornell University in upstate New York. In Hod's field, using the word consciousness is like saying a profanity. We call it the C word, or we can't say it. It's one of these things. <laughs> oh, I know another C word. It's not that one. Yeah, okay. No, no. So consciousness that's... is a dirty word because Hod isn't a biologist or medical researcher. He's a professor of engineering. He builds robots. If you are a roboticist and you talk about consciousness, you're going to be fired. This is sort of a, a topic that is taboo in robotics. Taboo robots. I got to touch and hold some of them at an event New Tech City held here in New York. There, in front of a live audience, Hot explained why he's always wanted to become sort of the real Dr. Frankenstein and build a machine with human qualities. I always heard parents saying, okay, my kid is creative, curious. These are sort of things that are uniquely human. And Machines can't be creative, and I always wanted to see if we can make a machine that will actually come up with ideas, ask questions, do those kinds of things. One of Hod's first creative robots came in the form of sort of a a crab-like looking thing with four legs, about the size of a medium dog. So here I have a, a, a very simple robot. We wanted this robot to learn how to walk. To learn to walk. And this is where it gets crazy. By using but its so computer the brain. Is that the robot begins by moving its motors in a random way, just okay. wiggling randomly. And then it creates hypotheses about what it might look like. After a while, it begins to form a self-model. It took the machine about four days to figure out that it had four legs, to think it through. Thinking, figuring, calculating, 
taking in information from sensors, running algorithm after algorithm through its head, and then it walked. Here it is actually moving in reality. So when you look at this robot, you have to remember it was not programmed how to move forward. It didn't have an idea of what it looks like. The crab-like creature sort of gimps its way across the floor, one hard plastic tentacle at a time. You can see the video at newtechcity.org. We actually were hoping to uh, get an evil spidery walk, but instead we got that lame way of moving forward. Hod and his human friends looked at the robot and thought about, you know, how we walk, two-legged creatures that we are, and they just sort of figured it would walk one certain way, like a crab, because that's what it looks like. But nope. The robot came up with its own way of moving that no human dreamed up, and it worked. Babies figure out that they have limbs, and they figure out how to crawl, how to move. And robots can teach themselves how to move through a very human process, too. This robot, nicknamed the Evil Starfish, developed a self-image. When we think about ourselves, we have a mental image of what we are what we can do, how we think, then it allows the robot to learn a lot faster because now it has a self-image. It can figure out how to walk. Okay, first mind-blowing moment. I'm just marking it right here because, I mean, it just reminds me as a parent of that moment when your kid discovers his toes. Exactly. You know, my personal challenge is really to, to try to make these machines that exhibit human characteristics, not because we program them in directly, but because they learn these things, because they sort of want to do that. Robots that learn, that want to learn. They want to try things. But that wanting to learn, can you call that a feeling? And if so, how should we humans respond? Sure don't talk like a machine. Alive, Stephanie. Number five, alive. You can see how using the word consciousness around this kind of robot might make some engineers a little nervous. Anyway, the evil starfish is not going to change your life. He won't be gimping through your living room anytime soon. But it does bring to mind sort of other images of autonomous robots. Terminator, anyone? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Okay, that's just Hollywood. But it is very likely that eventually robots won't just be in factories. They'll take care of our homes or fight our wars or be drones making deliveries from crowded skies. This is not just science fiction. Computer chip maker Qualcomm, they just announced they're ready to help manufacture brain-like computer chips, neuromorphic hardware, as it's called, which could be used to predict and classify information like people do, just faster. So it doesn't seem that far-fetched when scientists predict that robots will be everywhere, doing things they themselves, as robots, decide to do based on these learning algorithms. Which is why Lipson says, now, before this all happens, is the time to talk about what we want the guiding principles for these robots to be. This kind of research shouldn't be done behind closed doors. It should be done in the open. It's a very powerful technology. And uh, personally, I think a lot more good is going to come out of it than bad. But we definitely have to be having these discussions about where we want this to go. In a minute, debating just how human we want our robots to be. You might think not very. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. But robots don't have to be like HAL 9000. 
We'll hear researcher Adam Waits's experiment with self-driving cars. Participants would get into an accident that was clearly not their fault. Please forgive me. New Tech City is supported by LegalZoom. If you've been thinking about starting your own business, LegalZoom can help you do it. Learn more about DBAs, LLCs, incorporation, trademarks, and other ways to protect your business and assets at LegalZoom.com. LegalZoom provides self-help services and can connect you with an attorney, but they're not a law firm. Enter technology in the referral box at checkout for a special discount for New Tech City listeners. Skyline Cloud Services, a cloud technology solution for small and medium-sized businesses, providing data and software hosting solutions, including cloud paging, allowing access to full-feature desktop software from any internet-connected PC. Skyline is an authorized commercial host of Intuit and other leading software companies to provide managed hosting and rental of their software titles, including QuickBooks. Learn more at skylinecloudservices.com. So we're back. This is New Tech City from WNYC. I'm Manoush Samarodi. And we've been talking about the robot that can learn to do things, can be self-aware. And we're asking, how human do we really want our robots to be? At this point, it's important to mention that Google has been on a buying spree of robotics companies. And just last month, it literally rolled out its new self-driving car, with a video of regular people trying it out on a track in Mountain View. Oh, it's really cool. It was like really kind of a space-age experience. No steering wheel, no brakes, just an on-off button, a screen with the route, and a front hood design that kind of looks like a friendly little face with a bumper, headlights, and a sensor for a nose. It actually rides better than my own car. Yes. (laughs) I love this. You can also check out that video at NewTechCity.org. And chances are the most likely application of a fully autonomous robot that you will experience in your lifetime, it won't look anything like the Terminator or that scurrying evil starfish we met at the top of the show. The thinking robot you are most likely to meet is the driverless car. But what should the rules be for these cars? Should they never hurt any living creature? Should they always obey their owners? One of the people already trying to figure out that answer is Adam Waits. I'm a psychologist and assistant professor of management and organizations at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. And so, Adam, what is your sort of focus in terms of studying and doing research? For about the past 10 years, I've been studying how do people think about the minds of others including both other humans and other non-humans as well. Like, say, a robot in the shape of a car. We studied people's responses to a self-driving car by asking them to drive in a very realistic driving simulator. And we basically assigned people to drive the car in one of three conditions. The first condition was normal. People drove the car like usual. The other two conditions were more interesting. The car was self-driving. And of the people riding along in the self-driving car, half of them were told that the car had a name. Iris. uh, Iris had a human female voice. And Iris spoke to the rider throughout her drive. Are you enjoying your ride? Am I going too fast for you? During the ride, the scientist would check in. How's it going? You having a good time? Relaxing? But then something bad would happen. 
every single ride. Participants would get into an accident that was clearly not their fault. Adam and his colleagues wanted to see who the rider blamed when another car backed out of a driveway and hit them. So this is a, a very realistic accident that I've been in in my, in my real life where someone just simply isn't looking where they're going when they're backing out. Ouch, that hurt. And then this raises the interesting question, well, how do we start assigning responsibility and intentionality and culpability when things don't go according to plan? So here's what's kind of funny. Of the people riding along in the self-driving car, if they were riding along in the car that was named Iris, who talked to them, they blamed her, I mean it, less, significantly less. Please forgive me. What was most interesting was that giving the car these very human-like features that are really cues to the fact that this is sort of a trustworthy, intelligent, competent being meant that people gave the car the benefit of the doubt. And in the case of an accident where it's clearly the fault of the other car, uh, I'm going to blame and punish my car less. Okay, so the cues to humanity are pretty simple. Name, gender, voice, especially voice, is humanizing. You're not surprised, are you? But there's more. Adam and co. videotaped and measured the heart rates of the drivers when they got into that accident. And they were all way more relaxed when they were riding along in Iris. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you felt that way. They also felt less stress in response to an accident, both through measuring their heart rate and through uh, looking at videotapes of these participants. They looked less startled. So you're saying that people enjoyed riding in a lady car named Iris more than just a hunk of metal, basically. Exactly. This study is evidence that we are more accepting of robots when they're more human, even if they're shaped like a car. But Adam says that's precisely why we need to take this discussion a step further to where things get uncomfortable. What happens when the autonomous car has to make a tough decision? Do I swerve toward a car of teenagers in order to avoid hitting an elderly person crossing the street. These are the more rich and complex ethical issues that we need to study further. This is a question that's at the very front of mind for roboticists typing in the code for the self-driving cars and for ethicists, lawyers, insurance agents. Who's to blame when a robot does harm? When Google's cute little self-driving car eventually crashes into something, something with an actual heartbeat, who gets the ticket or the handcuffs? So is that on the engineer? Is that on the car itself? Not me. I am just a piece of metal. Does that have something to do with the driver? Uh, parsing out, you know, where the intentionality is and where the causality is in these actions is going to be critical for establishing ethical and legal guidelines for where to assign blame. I mean, when you put it that way, it sounds like a messy court case, essentially. And, you know, to be honest, as a, as a social psychologist who studies ethics and morality and who teaches about this stuff, uh, these types of scenarios are really fascinating. We look for social relationships whenever we can, and we form attachments somewhat promiscuously. You know, as far back as Aristotle, humans have been called social animals, and this can extend to uh, non-people as well. 
and the driverless car is already here before we've figured out exactly how to deal with these legal and ethical issues. Now, you're listening to all this, and you might be thinking, so how is Google programming their cars? Is there a line of code in there about what to do when there's an unavoidable crash? Should the car sacrifice its owner to save two pedestrians? Hod Lipson, our Cornell roboticist, says don't be so shocked at the prospect. We already are deciding what gets to live and what gets to die in many other areas. So it's not, it's not inconceivable that we might do that uh, with driverless cars, but uh, we could program this. But there won't be a line of code saying roll over the squirrel but swerve around Fido. uh, Machines can learn it by watching what humans do. Machines can watch. What what do humans do when there's a squirrel? What do humans do when there's a deer? What do humans do when there's a plastic bag blowing across the highway? And learn from that. And I think that in the long term, that's the only way to really program these machines. Just like babies watching us walk and listening to us talk, driverless cars and all kinds of robots will learn from how we behave, from us. The idea that some genius programmer is going to sit there and think about all the cases and anticipate all the issues in advance, hopeless. The only way it's going to work is that these machines watch and learn in the real world. So, like it or not, our cars will drive like humans but hopefully never like a drunk human or a teenage human learning to drive, an ideal human with much faster reaction times, we hope. And it's not just Google, of course. The U.S. military seems to want to figure out some of this before they put robots out on the battleground. In May, the Office of Naval Research announced it was putting in $7.5 million to figure out whether robots can have a sense of right or wrong. Morals. So I guess to me, being a good citizen and a good consumer in the digital age, it means getting educated. It means having some understanding, no matter how small, of how this technology works, like learning about Hod Lipson, making conscious robots, just getting a taste of what the crazy possibilities are. And then we have to make sure that the tech companies and the government are transparent including us in their discussions and telling us who is making these ethical choices, like where a self-driving car should swerve if it gets into an accident. Okay, call me crazy, and I know you do, but I think that transparency should happen before a new product or robot rolls out. We're not asking for trade secrets. We are asking for consumers to be part of these ethical conversations, too. It's not that crazy. Yes, it is very important. Thank you, Iris. Now, if you feel unnerved by this podcast or excited or both, well, that's what New Tech City is for. To talk about some of the crazy, important, incredibly wild changes that are happening to our society every day and the decisions that we're making about our future. We have to be talking about it, even if it seems so far off or daunting or just crazy geeky. So please just take a second and subscribe to the podcast. Rate us if you can spare two seconds. It means a lot to me and the team, and it helps us keep bringing you crazy ethical dilemmas and stories from the digital age. Like this one for next week. A behind-the-scenes look at how the tech media sausage gets made and an interview with Twitter pioneer and Square founder Jack Dorsey. Okay, so it's Manoush, and I'm sitting in a hallway in a random Hyatt 
on 42nd Street with Jack Dorsey. <laughs> nice to be here with you. <laughs> That's next week on New Tech City. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Thank you so much for listening. Ouch, that hurt. But I'm sure you are fine. You will find Xanax in the driver's compartment. Wait, there is no driver. I am the driver. I am the driver. I am the driver. I'm terribly sorry. I f***ed up. Jack Dorsey is hot. He is my kind of man. He can write a lot of code. He can write my code. (laughs) Iris, the fake robot.